YouTube has been accused of collecting UK children's data. Google client-side encryption for Gmail is now open to the public. Canada has banned TikTok for government devices. Parents in France may soon have to think twice before sharing photos of their kids online and more. Welcome everybody to Surveillance Report 124, where we, or I this week, are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. I am Henry from TechLore. There was no Nate this week, but he should be back next week. Before getting into the updates, we currently don't accept sponsors, and so this entire podcast is completely supported by all of you. So we really appreciate that, but also want to make sure that we are reminding you that if you like this podcast and you get value from it, make sure to join. Patreon is definitely the most helpful for us. We almost have 80 people, only two more patrons, and we will get to 80. So if you like this podcast and you like the value it brings you for starting at $5 a month, you can go ahead and join them and help us hit that 80 number. If you join our Patreon, the lowest tier allows you to join our Q&A, and then the higher tier actually gets rid of these segments automatically, and it also has extended things where we talk more about some of these stories and dive deeper into them and give more of our thoughts on them. For people who want those longer episodes and more of our rants and more of our personal takes on things. There's also LibraPay. If you don't want perks, but you still want to support us and you don't want to go through Patreon for whatever reasons those are, if those are privacy related. And also Monero. We support Monero, so you can go ahead and send us Monero. We see all those contributions. We don't know who you are, but we do thank everyone who sends us some Monero tips along. We post the timestamps each week, so feel free to skip ahead to the highlight story. This is definitely a longer week, though I do highly suggest listening to the fixes and the updates so that no one gets caught off guard with anything that's happening. A couple quick updates on last week's podcast. So we explained biometrics versus passcodes in relation to a story about a shoulder surfing attack. We explained that biometrics are a good protection against shoulder surfing attacks. Some of you, rightfully so, stepped in and said, but biometrics have these problems. And those are very true. We could have done a better job of outlining this, but a lot of times when we cover mitigations to specific stories, we're covering mitigations for those specific stories. If we add several layers of nuance to each story, it's going to make this podcast really long. Yes, biometrics have their own problems. We've covered these in other stories where we discourage biometrics for those specific stories. This is a podcast where we cover news. If you want more nuance and more recommendations over at TechLore, we cover all of this very in-depth. And then Nate has the new oil, which also covers this in-depth. We're very aware of biometric concerns. We cover it all the time here. And just because we say that biometrics are better than passcodes for a specific attack and a specific story doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best choice for everyone. Um, Twitter cross-posting. So because Twitter has announced that they are looking to paywall their API usage, uh, lots of Twitter cross-posters from Mastodon have been shut down or are close to shutting down. Technically, we don't even do Mastodon first. We actually have a status log on our website. If you go to surveillancesupport.tech, there's a status log. That status log automatically posts to our Mastodon. So I never open Mastodon when I do our posts there. And then for Mastodon, we had a cross-poster to Twitter. I want to remind everyone, it's just us two, and it already takes a long time for us to get notes and to gather these stories each week to record these stories and edit them. The whole recording and editing process for surveillance support is done by just Nate and I on the weekends, and we each have our own projects. I have TechLore, Nate has the new oil. This is not something that we're looking to manage, especially comments or communities very in-depth for. So the announcement right now is... We're not really posting to Twitter and we're not really looking to put time into posting on each individual platform. That's all extra time that we're not looking to put into these platforms. Twitter isn't really working. You can still follow us on Twitter, but no posts will be made. We're going to see what happens to the API issue and see if there's any alternatives that come up and we'll work from there. 
as of right now, that's the announcement, and we will keep you guys updated as things come out and updates come around. So the highlight story this week, YouTube has been accused of collecting UK children's data. Now, for many of you who listen to this podcast, you're already going, well, duh. But again, these stories are incredibly important because they actually have proof of anything that we talk about. And also they're great stories to share with people you know. On top of this, this story isn't actually that clear cut. It's not just YouTube collects data. It's actually a little bit more tricky than that. So Duncan McCann has launched an official complaint with the Information Commissioner's Office, also known as the ICO in the UK. YouTube has always said its service was not intended for use by children below the age of 13, as it offers a separate children's app called YouTube Kids, as well as a supervised experience, which requires parental consent. Mr. McCann, though, says plenty of children watch YouTube content on family devices on normal YouTube, where this data can be gathered by default because it is not registered as a children's account. He says, quote, my preferred reform that YouTube should make is that it actually, when you enter YouTube, they don't collect any unnecessary and process any unnecessary information. He also said the best way to ensure that they are only collecting the data of adults who are properly consenting would be to have a process where adults can sign in to the tracking recommendation systems, profiling, and targeted ads. So when I read this, I actually struggled at first because while this seems like a good initiative, I actually kind of... I I don't side with YouTube on this, but it definitely is a legal loophole that YouTube can say, well, if you're under 13, you're not supposed to be on our website. And so I was actually a little bit like, well, this kind of seems to solve the wrong problem. But actually, McCann's actual stance on this is that YouTube should simply not track anyone and people should have to opt into this, which is ultimately the core goal of all of these privacy precautions. Because my original thought, the issue with that is this starts going into KYC territory where you have to verify identities, where... Instead of now the default just being no tracking, YouTube would now have to make double sure that everyone who accesses their site is 13 or up or 18 and up or 16 and up, depending on what country you're from or whatever the legalities are, um, YouTube would want to age verify everyone. And this is what we would see on other websites as well. And I don't think that that's actually a good solution because now you're having to upload more data and more information and it becomes a greater privacy concern. And these companies are now responsible for securing that data. And we're just going to see the data breaches section just get longer and longer. Whereas this ultimate solution is these services simply do not track people. And in order to turn on tracking, you have to consent that you are an adult. So if a child consents to being an adult, that is now their responsibility, but they won't be tracked by default. I love it. When I first read this, I was a little bit critical, but I actually love this stance, and I think that this is how it should be. And now let's dive into the data breaches of the week. So conservative news corp Empire says hackers were inside its network for two years. This is a parent company for the Wall Street Journal, among others. They believe this is a threat actor with ties to the Chinese government and believe the goal was espionage. Personal data of employees were compromised, including names, date of birth, social security numbers, driver license numbers, passport numbers, financial account information, medical information, and health insurance information. Next up, U.S. Marshals Service investigating ransomware attack and data theft. The affected system contains law enforcement sensitive information, including returns from legal process, administrative information, and personally identifiable information pertaining to subjects of USMS investigations, third parties, and certain USMS employees. They had a breach in December 2019 as well, so this is not new for them. 
British retail chain W.H. Smith says data was stolen in a cyber attack. So W.H. Smith has been the target of a cybersecurity incident, which has resulted in illegal access to some company data, including current and former employee data. Customer data was not affected because this information is stored on separate systems that remain safe from unauthorized access. So good news for customers, bad news for employees. Individuals confirmed to be impacted by the incident will be notified directly. Hatch Bank says hackers used Fortra bug to steal 140,000 customer social security numbers. So this impacted the social security numbers of close to 140,000 customers, including 630 individuals based in Maine. It's believed that this was done via a vulnerability in Fortra's Go Anywhere file transfer, which was used internally by the bank to likely transfer files. What this story to me speaks to is that privacy and security is extremely complicated and it's filled with layers and also all it takes sometimes is one layer to fall for everything else to, to, to topple over. It's kind of like Jenga, kind of like a bad fruit analogy as well. You know, one bad fruit spreads to everything else. But in this case, all it took was a vulnerability in the file transfer software. This was one software the bank used for all of its business. Just one of them had a vulnerability and now they stole social security numbers for 140,000 customers. This is why Nate and I both generally talk about minimalism and how we talk about using less things is generally better. So there are definitely exceptions and sometimes services can definitely add a lot to your privacy and security journey. But oftentimes when it comes to just day-to-day -day apps, day-to-day -day programs, day-to-day -day accounts, when you can minimize that, that's fantastic. Cyber criminals have stolen gun owners' data from firearm auction website. So the reach exposed sensitive personal data for more than 550,000 users, including full names, home addresses, email addresses, plain text passwords. So whoever is running this auction site, shame on you for storing plain text passwords and telephone numbers. Also, the stolen data allegedly makes it possible to link a particular person with the sale or purchase of a specific weapon. And actually, how this was discovered was really interesting. So a researcher discovered a server containing the data, which wasn't actually owned because normally this is owned by the website itself. Normally it's a misconfigured server, but no, this actually turned out to be used by the attackers who were using the server to store the stolen data. The server was not protected by any system to limit or control who could access it. So the researcher just downloaded the data and analyzed it. And now we know about this breach. So it's unclear how this attacker got plain text passwords. I guess in theory, they could have cracked all the passwords and published them, but it's more likely that the auction website was just not hashing passwords, which is phenomenal. Indian startup Yes Madam exposed sensitive data of customers and gig workers. This is an at-home salon platform. I've never heard of this in my life, but apparently they come to your house and they do whatever you want them to do. It's a salon that comes to you. It's pretty neat. Never heard of this before. But unfortunately, the startup left a database containing full names, mobile numbers, mailing addresses, and email addresses of hundreds of thousands of customers connected to the internet without a password since at least February 20th. The database also included customers' location data, including their latitude and longitude values, as well as payment links and user device details, such as model names and IMEI numbers. This also included profile images, names, and mobile numbers of gig workers on the platform. Up next, Dish Network has confirmed a ransomware attack behind its multi-day outage. So there was an outage that hit Dish.com, the Dish Anywhere app, Boost Mobile, which is a subsidiary owned by Dish Wireless, which I actually didn't know. 
and other websites and networks owned and operated by Dish Network were also down. Customers have reported that the company's call center phone numbers were also unreachable. It was unclear what this was at first, though a lot of people speculated that it was some form of attack. Dish Network has now said it has determined that the outage was due to a cybersecurity incident and notified appropriate law enforcement authorities. Minneapolis public schools say encryption virus infected tech systems and data may be compromised. This happened earlier this week in an incident that led the district to cancel all after-school activities. By the way, this is public schools, so we're talking about children here. It's unclear if personal data was stolen, though it's pretty safe to assume so, given they haven't verified there wasn't data stolen. So I encourage to change passwords when you can, enable two-factor authentication, and just be aware of phishing attempts if you are part of this district. Okay, this one's interesting. So Biden Cash Market leaks over 2 million stolen credit cards for free. I had to look into this. So Biden Cash has nothing to do with Biden. It's marketed around Biden for some reason, and it's not a cryptocurrency. I thought this was like some Biden-oriented cryptocurrency because why not? But no, it's a credit card marketplace which has stolen credit cards for people to buy. So they have leaked online a free database of over 2 million debit and credit cards in celebration of its first anniversary. It's worth mentioning this is not the first time Biden Cash has used free credit card leaks for promotion. So this is actually promotional. Just speak to that in October, the same carding shop released another free dump of over 1 million credit cards. And just as it happened the last week, um, they distributed it via a clearnet domain and various other hacking and carding forms. The article says roughly 30% out of random sampling of the leaked credit cards that were analyzed at the time turned out to be fresh, which means they're usable for financial fraud. And I did want to say that at this point, personally, I almost exclusively use privacy.com both in person because I am in the beta that you can use it in Apple Wallet or Apple Pay, whatever the hell it's called, and online, especially where it's always been usable. Before people ask, I'm much happier to trust one party with my information in exchange to not have to trust hundreds of people with my information. All it takes is one person you shop at to leak your credit or debit card number, and now it's out there in the public. Whereas if you just trust one person who now generates fake information for hundreds of websites, yes, you are putting your eggs in one basket, but ultimately if there's a privacy.com breach, you're in my book, no worse off than if any of these other platforms had a breach. This is actually very similar to most aliasing solutions. Most aliasing solutions are a transfer of trust from countless parties to one party. That's what makes aliasing solutions so powerful, but it's also the drawback of aliasing solutions. This next one is an update. LastPass says employee's home computer was hacked and corporate vault taken. A lot of people are sharing this around as if it's a new attack, and I don't believe that's the case. This sounds like an update to how the previous breaches we've covered relating to LastPass were done. So to cover this, the vault gave access to a shared cloud storage environment that contained the encryption keys for customer vault backups stored in Amazon S3 buckets. According to a person briefed on a private report from LastPass and spoke on the condition of anonymity, the media, (laughs) so funny, this is like out of nowhere, the media software package that was exploited on the employee's home computer in order for this attack to happen was Plex of all pieces of software. Going back to the story earlier about how that bank used a file transfer program and that was the vulnerability that led to them stealing social security numbers. Yeah, pretty similar situation here. Just Plex running from home was the reason why all of this happened. So again, minimalism. To get back to the story, Plex reported its own network intrusion on August 24th, just 12 days after that second incident commenced. The breach allowed the threat actor to access a proprietary database and make off with password data, usernames, and emails belonging to some of its 30 million customers. Crazy. We're almost done with data breaches, people. I know it's a long week. Cybercriminal leaks alleged Activision employee data on a cybercrime forum. 
The leaked data consists of almost 20,000 unique records containing full names, phone numbers, job titles, locations, and email addresses of Activision employees. I think that's a video game company. The dump is offered freely to all forum members in a text file. Nate did make a bet on this last week, and anyone who bet against Nate is free to pay him using any methods on the new oil website. Or if you want to pay both of us, you can join the surveillance support stuff as well. I only join Nate's bets after he wins them. That's my strategy. Ooh, another fast food joint. Uh, Chick-fil-A has confirmed account hacking in a months-long automated attack. This is an update to rumors of this attack that we covered in the past. So again, stay subscribed to Surveillance Support because we're always updating you on stories and this is an always unfolding podcast. So Chick-fil-A has now formally confirmed that over 70,000 customers' accounts were breached in a months-long credential stuffing attack, allowing threat actors to use stored rewards balances and access personal information. These accounts were actually sold for prices ranging from $2 to $200, depending on the rewards account balance and linked payment method. For some customers, the information may have included birthdays, phone numbers, physical addresses, and the last four digits of credit cards. In response to the attack, Chick-fil-A forced customers to reset passwords, froze funds loaded into accounts, and removed any stored payment information from accounts. Chick-fil-A also states that they restored Chick-fil-A 1 account balances, I think Chick-fil-A 1 is whatever the rewards is, and added rewards to impacted accounts as a way of apologizing for the incident. Couple things here. First, this is a credential stuffing attack. Accounts were breached using credentials exposed in other data breaches. So this attack was ultimately the result of people reusing credentials. So use a password manager, people, please. The second thing I wanna comment on here, absolutely none of the information except the credit card had to have been legitimate. Again, they asked for a name, which could be literally any name. Chick-fil-A doesn't care what name you give them. Could have been any email address. If you're using Simple Login or Anon Addy or another email aliasing solution, which you all should probably be using, then you're not giving them a real email. It's just an email used for Chick-fil-A. If you're using VOIP services, they just have a fake phone number. Doesn't even have to be a real phone number. There's really no reason why any of this had to be real information except your credit card. And even then, again, if you're using privacy.com, you don't have to worry about it. We always encourage minimalism, meaning you don't open these accounts in the first place, but when you do, open it with the concept of minimalism from the concept of having to share your personal information, which is minimize the amount of personal real information you're giving companies because you don't know what's going to happen. It could be Chick-fil-A, could be Habit, could be Burger King, could be McDonald's, could be literally all the millions of other merchants out there. You just don't know. And the final data breach, hackers have claimed the Oakland ransomware attack and leaked confidential data. Outside that, there's really no information on this. The city has remained completely quiet about it and what they're planning to do. So stay subscribed as we hear more about this because Oakland just has their mouth shut. And now on to companies. So Google has Gmail client-side encryption now publicly available. This is an update. We covered this in the past, how Google was rolling out CSE, which we'll cover what that is soon, for specific people in enterprise, I believe. But now this is generally available for Google Workspace, Enterprise Plus, Education Plus, and Education Standard customers. Google Workspace, anyone can register for, and it's not that expensive. Before we dive into this, CSE is similar to end-to-end encryption, but a little bit different. CSE ensures that any sensitive data as part of the email's body and attachments, including inline images, will be unreadable and encrypted before reaching Google's servers. With that said, the email header, which includes subject, timestamp, and recipients list will not be encrypted. So that is a limitation in their implementation. The difference between this and end-to-end encryption is end-to-end encryption, the emails you would send are encrypted on your device and only decrypted when they reach a recipient's device. With end-to-end encryption, only the sender and recipients will 
will see the full contents of an email. With Gmail's CSE, the private keys used to decrypt encrypted emails are potentially accessible by the company's administrator and other applications. So again, CSE is more geared towards enterprise-related stuff, which is why they're rolling this out into workspace. And this is actually really nice from a corporate perspective because now companies can have assurance that Google isn't able to access their emails. And many companies want to be able to view employees' emails, which is a lot of times very valid. Sometimes it's not, sometimes that's abused, but I think it's very valid for a company to want to be able to track the emails that their employees are sending to other people. So this is more of a corporate feature than a consumer end-to-end encryption that we might see in something like ProtonMail. With that said, Google moving in this direction, maybe we will see end-to-end encryption in Gmail someday, but there's absolutely no signs of it yet. The next story really quick, the EU is pretty much forcing Apple to drop the WebKit requirement. As of right now, any browser you download on an iPhone is still using WebKit, which is the underlying technology for Safari. So regardless of what browser you choose, there could be features and other things that are happening, but under the hood, it's all WebKit. But the EU is making Apple drop this requirement. And Google a few weeks ago just said, oh yeah, you know, we're just going to you know, silently test our own browser engine on, on iOS, but it has nothing to do with the new EU ruling. We're just trying it out. But we're now we're starting to see some more stuff come out uh, and there's real progress being made and screenshots of the new Blink browser, which is Chrome's underlying technology in action. So if you want to see the screenshots and you want to dive more into that, that is down in the description. I also want to mention, I think one or two weeks ago, we covered how Firefox is also working on their own browser engine for iOS. So we're starting to see browsers kind of move in this direction of implementing their own browser engines. And the final company news for the week, hackers claim they breached T-Mobile more than 100 times in 2022. So this is really interesting and comes from three different cyber criminal groups. In each case, the goal of the attackers was the same, which was to fish T-Mobile employees for access to internal company tools and then convert that access into a cybercrime service that could be hired to divert any T-Mobile users' text messages and phone calls to another device. In other words, they seem to be trying to go for SIM swapping attacks as well as trying to get multi-factor authentication codes that are sent via SMS. The article deep dives into the operation and how it's conducted, and it's pretty neat to see how this is all done. But the takeaways here, yes, T-Mobile seems to be the worst cell company here, But AT&T and Verizon are clearly called out in the same article for similar issues, though not as rampant. Ultimately, it's clear that SMS is an absolute cluster for security, as well as these large cell companies. So please do not trust them with anything sensitive. Seriously, the vibe here seems to be that these attackers just call T-Mobile employees and then they social engineer them and they take some internal tools and then forward people's messages to their own numbers, which... Why is there a tool that does that in the first place that's accessible to just a random employee? The whole concept this was possible in the first place speaks to how these companies do not give a damn about your security. What this means for you, for two-factor authentication, TOTP is a minimum. That is where you have your locally generated codes that do not go through SMS. Ideally, we're moving towards hardware keys or pass keys. No SMS 2FA when it can be avoided. Additionally, I encourage people to register for prepaid phone plans where that's an option because that doesn't require any real personal information like your social security number or anything like that. And also, I encourage people to use alias phone numbers and protect your phone number you use for your accounts. So it's hard for people to even know what phone numbers you're using to log into things. 
a general rule of thumb here is the person you're messaging shouldn't know what phone number you're using to log in to your accounts online. All right, research. The first research is a really interesting one and it's who writes Linux and open source software. So an open source cloud data platform company recently analyzed who's doing what with GitHub open source code projects. They found that the top open source contributors were all companies. Amazon Web Services, Intel, Red Hat, Google, and Microsoft. Specifically, the research found that in 2022's last quarter, Microsoft and Google continued to be the top spot. Google staff were working across more projects than Microsoft, but contributing fewer updates overall. So pretty much a lot of activity in the open source world is done by developers that work for companies, which is not inherently good or bad in my book. It's just an observation. So I'm going to quote the article here. Open source certainly started with individual contributors, but today and for many years before, it's company employees that are really making the code. And I think there's so many different interpretations to this. I mean, on one hand, it's cool to see companies contributing to open source code because that injects so much talent into the open source world. And you have actual companies with profits that can sustain these open source projects because many open source projects don't really have real business models. Again, not all. There are plenty of open source projects with real business models that scale and they're fantastically successful. I know they're out there. But a lot of open source projects don't have that. And having companies that are able to actually sustain these projects is really cool. On the other hand, I see how a company that's managing an open source project might lead to more distrust because a company can tailor the decisions made by the project to do X, Y, Z. But ultimately, it's still open source and it's still transparent and you can still analyze the code and make your own decision on whether or not to use the software. The next one, uh, there's a side channel attack against Crystal's Kyber. It probably sounds silly because there's a way of pronouncing that that I don't know. This is not something I'm familiar with. This is a public key algorithm that's currently recommended by NIST as part of its post-quantum cryptography standardization process. Now, the real story here is researchers have just published a side channel attack using power consumption against an implementation of the algorithm that was supposed to be resistant against that sort of attack. I want to outline here that this algorithm is not broken or cracked or anything like that, despite headlines that kind of seem to claim that. This is just a side channel attack. So side channel attacks are more about just presenting possible issues rather than something actually being cracked or broken or inherently insecure. Personal note here, definitely personal opinion. I find side channel attacks to be a huge source of, I don't want to say misinformation, but definitely a lack of nuanced information. An example of this, and this is one I see a lot. People say, oh, it doesn't matter if you take out the microphone in your phone or you take out the microphone in your computer because they can just use the gyroscope anyway. And and that's really not how privacy and security works. Just because there's always a side channel attack doesn't mean that you don't implement the core advice. Denying the microphone permission within apps and programs is effective. Removing your microphone altogether is definitely extreme, but effective. Saying that it's not effective or that it doesn't really matter because these services can use the gyroscope anyway because of a, because of published research, which, by the way, is completely legitimate research. You can use the gyroscope to pick up audio. That is a real thing. Now, is every app going to be doing that? Absolutely not, because this is a side channel attack that requires generally a huge level of sophistication, and normally they're very targeted attacks that don't impact the majority of people. So I really ask people, this is a just, and I know this is turning into a rant, but people, side channel attacks, and the reason why we cover them is because they're cool and they inform you about possible workarounds to the real core protections. We've covered some of the most ridiculous side channel attacks here and they're super fun to cover and I think they're super cool. I'm all about them. Side channel attacks are awesome, but you need to keep in mind 
how often and how hard these are to pull off most of the time. And the reality is they're normally just ridiculous to the point where most people would never do that. So just to summarize my rant here, please people do not let side channel attacks scare you away from the core protections in place. Please take your microphone permission seriously, your camera permission seriously, and don't just stop doing things because you hear about some super edge case side channel attack that will probably never be used on anyone. And if it does, it's going to be used on some ultra targeted journalists by a state government. Rant over. Last research article, the camera shy hoodie. So the camera shy hoodie is a DIY adversarial garment designed to give a user the option to anonymize themselves within the recording of a night vision security camera. If you watch the video, it basically blinds the camera, but using IR so it doesn't blind people or stand out. It's actually open source, which is really neat. So the creator lists all the parts you need and instructions on how to make them. So awesome stuff. But if you don't want to go through that, it costs about $200. Or if you prefer, there's a wait list to sell them. And now politics. And I don't have Nate here to give all the hard stories. So the White House releases a new US national cybersecurity strategy. So this strategy is interesting because it's focused on shifting the burden of defending the country's cyberspace towards software vendors and service providers. And that's coming from from orig originally the burden was on individuals and small businesses. So the main objective is to defend U.S. critical infrastructure, disrupt malicious threat actors aiming to endanger U.S. interests, invest strategically to establish a more secure digital ecosystem, and develop international partnerships to achieve shared goals. These are all great goals, but unfortunately, I am not qualified enough to actually look into how they're implementing this to see if that would actually result in those goals. Other protocols include more aggressive campaigns aiming to make state-backed or financially motivated malicious activity unprofitable and in effective and ensuring that U.S. infrastructure is no longer used in attacks and targeting organizations in the U.S. Again, I'm not really qualified to comment on whether or not the implementations and what they're actually trying to change will result in this, but this is the goal of what they're trying to do. Next one is a report from the EFF, which says that ICE and the Secret Service conducted illegal surveillance of cell phones. Again, people who watch this, you're going to have a no-duh moment, but again, these reports are extremely important so that we have real evidence to cite and that we can share with people that we know. So the story pretty much covers that ICE, Homeland Security Investigation, and the Secret Service have conducted surveillance using cell site simulators, also known as CSS. No, not the web language, CSS, cell site simulators, without proper authorization and in violation of the law. Specifically, they found that these agencies did not adhere to federal privacy policy governing the use of CSS and failed to obtain special orders required before using these surveillance devices. The EFF notes that the report redacts crucial information regarding the total number of times that each agency used this without, with and without a warrant, and when they use the devices to support external information. They argue that they should release this information to the public, knowing that this data would not harm any active investigations. It's just numbers of how often it's used. And it could actually inform public debate over the agency's reliance on this invasive technology. Quoting the EFF, make no mistake, cell site simulators are mass surveillance that draws in, that draws in on the cell signal and collects data on every phone in the vicinity. And all the EFF is asking for here is more transparency over how often this is used and how it's used, which I don't think is an unfair ask. Next, US military has signed a contract to put facial recognition on drones. Oh my God, how can we combine all the technologies that scare us into one? And it's through this. So the cost, the cost is just under $730,000 and currently only applies to smaller recon drones. But the contract specifies that it may be used in the future for target acquisition. Currently that's done via high quality cameras and cell phone tracking. 
At a glance, it sounds like using facial recognition software would help the people who operate drones make fewer mistakes, but facial recognition software is also famously faulty and prone to errors, and deploying facial recognition is a step on the path towards fully autonomous drones. I think this is incredibly spooky, especially because these are all technologies, right? Drones are still a work in progress. We still have not figured out how to regulate drones, how to not regulate drones, where they're okay, where they're not okay, what, what's considered a privacy violation, what's not considered a privacy violation. And then we have facial recognition, which we see consistently is not accurate, is over-relied on, has very little transparency in how it's used, is not always accurate, especially across different genders and races when you look at the data behind that. And so what should we do? We should combine these two tools and just see what happens. Now, I'm not staunchly against these technologies outright. What I want to see is better transparency, more evidence and data that these tools actually work as intended, and especially, oh gosh, I can't stress the transparency enough. Like, when is this used? How is it used? What kind of protocols are in place if there's a mistake? We don't have any of these discussions. The discussions all revolve around whether or not these tools are allowed. Not how they're allowed, when they're allowed, where they're allowed, who is allowed to use them, why they're allowed to use them. There is none of that. And I guess that my rants will continue because the next one is definitely gonna set me off. So BetterHelp owes customers $7.8 million after the FTC alleges data mishandling. BetterHelp is an online therapy platform. According to the FTC, BetterHelp assured customers that it would not share their health data except for the purpose of providing counseling. That is it. But the FTC alleged that BetterHelp shared customer emails, IP addresses, and health questionnaire responses with advertisers like Facebook, Snapchat, and Pinterest. Ah! BetterHelp's settlement marks the first proposed FTC order that would compensate consumers whose health data was compromised. This stuff pisses me off beyond no end. A, there is no formal regulation and consumers have no right to do anything federally which is already a problem, especially in the health-related world. I do ask, where is HIPAA in this? Because shouldn't HIPAA be involved in this? I don't know, not a lawyer. Either way, what really frustrates me about this is therapy is already a hard thing for people to go to, especially people who've never been to therapy. One of the most comforting things about therapy is that there are so many rules, regulations, and laws around therapy that make it a safe space. A huge selling point of therapy is the privacy between you and the therapist. So I cannot believe that this breach of trust has happened on the, in the digital world. And look, this hasn't happened to me, but I know that there are privacy advocates out there who are in a are, who who are in a relationship where they might be looking for therapy or they have family issues and looking for therapy and especially over the pandemic when there was lockdowns, I'm sure that everyone was encouraging them to go online and use online therapy and I'm sure they were hesitant to do it. And you know what? It sucks that that's not just fear-mongering. If a partner of mine said, "I don't feel comfortable using online therapy because of privacy regulation." I wouldn't actually be able to be like, hey, well, evidence says otherwise, because no, actually, a lot of evidence says that a lot of these platforms are not that private and are not that secure, and they're a complete breach of trust for the entire industry. And so therapists out there, doctors out there, anyone who has anything to do with therapy out there, you need to be paying attention to this, because this actually makes the entire industry look less and less like a safe space, which is what it's supposed to be. Regardless of who you are, what's going on, therapy is one of the few places where you have absolute privacy with very, 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 very few exceptions to that rule. All right, to get off my soapbox, let's move over to San Diego in California. So San Diego police want to add surveillance technology, which includes 500 streetlight cameras plus license plate readers. 
long-term surveillance support listeners, this is definitely an update for you. So you're just getting updates today from old stories. Almost three years ago, the city of San Diego cut off access to its broad network of smart streetlights, more than 3,000 devices that were perched atop light poles that could collect images and other data. The city removed that back in 2020. We covered that in surveillance support, and it's crazy that we've been doing this podcast for that long. It's wild. It's crazy that it's been like three years since the pandemic. This is like so trippy to read, but um, San Diego Police Department said it wants access to 500 of those devices to be restored now. And they want to add another crime-solving tool to the network, which is automated license plate readers. The plan, if approved, would make San Diego the biggest city in the U.S. to use both cameras and license plate readers as part of a single network, according to the police department. It would also cost an estimated $4 million to roll out both the technologies. And the department plans to pay for the program, guess where from? with funds from the city's general fund and grants. There is a lot in this article about how they want to implement this, and you can read into it yourself, but all I ask for, again, is clear disclosure, proper oversight, and the inability for police to abuse this power. Yes, I said the inability. There should not be a police officer that has the ability to abuse this because there are actual protocols in place to prevent that, which I have yet to see any city do. And what I'm reading in this article doesn't make me feel great about this one either. Read it for yourself, come to your own conclusion, And that goes for all stories here today. This story I really enjoy. So France aims to protect kids from parents oversharing pictures online. On Tuesday, members of the National Assembly's Law Committee unanimously greenlit draft legislation to protect children's rights to their own images. Quote, the message to parents is that their job is to protect their children's privacy. On average, children have 1,300 photos of themselves circulating on social media platforms before the age of 13. People, that's 1,300 images before the age of 13. That's 1,000 images per year. And that all happens before these children are even allowed to have an account on these platforms. <laughs> it's so crazy. So the legislation adopted on Tuesday includes protecting their children's privacy among parents' legal duties. Both parents w- both parents would be jointly responsible for their offspring's image rights and shall involve the child according to his or her age and degree of maturity. In the case of disagreement between parents, a judge can ban one of them from posting or sharing a child's pictures without authorization from the other, and in the most extreme cases, parents can lose their parental authority over their kids' image rights. The bill still needs to go through a session next week and the Senate before it would become law, so this is still in its draft format, but it's still interesting nonetheless. If you want to get the thrill of sharing images of your kid to other people, Share images of your kids with your friends and family directly on an end-to-end encrypted messenger-like signal. Start groups with them, build local community. Signal even has stories now, so you can have stories of your kids that only live on Signal and are still end-to-end encrypted. Just stop mass sharing everything about your kids to the world, because when you post it on social media, it's going to the world, not just your friends and family, which is what social media kind of wants you to believe is happening. And the final political news for the week. Canada has banned a TikTok on government devices. That's just the latest news. Uh, we see this every week now, some new thing that's happening with TikTok. This takes effect on February 28th, which has now passed. And this block follows similar actions taken by the European Commission and some states and some state governments in the US. If you're a patron, you're about to hear my thoughts on this. <laughs> and now FOSS, free and open source news. Bitwarden, the open source password manager, has upheld high security standards with annual third-party audits. That's 
That's their title. I'm not saying that. Um, so this is nice PR for Bitwarden. But PR aside, it's still overall good stuff. So audits were done that you can actually read. Not all audits are like that, by the way. And on top of that, Bitwarden is obviously going to plug their bug sharing program and their open source nature to market their security and safety. This is good stuff all around. Audits are a nice step to help reassure customers and to show that companies are trying to make improvements and look for errors when they can. So good stuff. Good job to Bitwarden. Next up, this is a fun one. Linux desktop powers are considering uniting for an app store. All right, all right, all right. So Linux people, I'm sorry for the introduction here, but for people who don't use Linux, most Linux distros have a package manager, which is how you get packages. You open a terminal or you open some kind of GUI and uh, there's a single package manager that's handling all your packages and you can just refresh for updates, kind of like the app store, right? If you have an app store on your phone, the package manager is... Apple or Google, and then they're giving you updates. The problem is that there's several package managers. So um, if you want to get Signal on Arch, you have to go through one package manager. If you want to get Signal on Debian, you have to go through a different package manager. If you want to get Signal on Fedora, you have to go through a different package manager. But flat packs are kind of a universal way of getting software on most Linux distros, if not all of them. They're trying to take this a step further. So what they're going for here is actually like a central GUI app store that would pretty much apply to most Linux distros out there if they opt to use this. I don't think this timing actually of this story is a coincidence with recent news for Canonical to drop Flatpak in its spins and opt for their own Snap. Snap is kind of like Flatpak, but more closed and kind of worse in pretty much every way, at least in my opinion. I know you're going to see some debates over this, but I think for the average end user, Flatpaks are almost always better than Snaps. It seems like this is some competition here in a Linux space, which ultimately I think will be good for the end user for whoever has the best experience for the end user. And aside from the competition side of things, I think, in my opinion, this whole idea is great. The variety of package managers on Linux, in my view, are an unnecessary complexity. Not just for the end user who has now to switch to a different package manager on a new Linux distro, but even for developers who have to package their software for different Linux distributions. And I understand that each package manager has its own pros and cons. I've used all the main ones at one point or another, but when developers have to package their programs in several different methods to account for every package manager on different Linux distros, it doesn't really do anyone favors. Now, I'm not against people using their own package manager or opting to use one on their own if they want. Please go off and do what you wanna do but I would really like to see more unification and a simpler Linux experience to make it a better experience for everyone, which I believe a more unified place to get software across all distros, except Ubuntu, who wants none of it, will provide that and will make a better experience for everyone. I know that hardcore Linux people are going to be strongly against this because they want, I don't know what they want. They want control in their own package manager, but you can still do that despite this. So I, I don't really know what the issue is here. I think this is nothing but good. But if people have real reasons to dislike this, I guess leave your comments below. Quick final FOSS story of the week, Privacy Guides, which is the resource for privacy guides, is now multilingual. So you can go ahead and check out the languages they added. And uh, that's cool stuff. And now Misfits. This is kind of a crazy story. So this is a life appending flaw that the USPS won't fix. For those outside the USPS, this is the United States Postal Service. This is how we all get our mail. So the USPS allows you to get a change of address form where pretty much if you move to a new location, you can fill out a change of address form which will forward your old mail to your new address, which is nice if you don't switch everything over properly and you miss something, it'll still forward everything properly. Now here's the issue. 
the change of address form doesn't require identity verification. So actually anyone can forward your mail to an address they control with just a single form. The reason this is making headlines is because it impacted a former Microsoft executive. And this isn't and this isn't just a case of one former Microsoft executive who just got unlucky and fell through the cracks. There was another story six months ago that reached the same conclusions with different people. And after reporting on a local family that had faced this issue on two separate occasions, USPS dismissed the family's ordeal by claiming the identity theft, quote, can't happen through a change of address fraud. This can absolutely, and is actually a wonderful tool for identity theft. So what USPS is saying here is, absolute donkey balls. And uh, and honestly, like the worst thing about this is there's actually very little people can do to prevent this. The real recommendation here is sadly constant vigilance. And what this article points out, which I fully agree with, is this is not the responsibility of the consumer. This is something that should be taken care of by USPS and they should enforce a solution to this, which is very simple and it's verify identity before doing a change of address form. All right, people, and now we're gonna move into the Q&A. Again, I wanna remind you that these questions come from our patrons every single week. If you wanna ask myself or Nate when he's here a question, join our Patreon, patreon.com slash surveillance pod. There's a link down below. Please go join. And we also love hearing and answering your questions. So if you wanna ask one, definitely join our Patreon. First question comes from Richard, who asks, how much does Google know about you if you use, say, Google Maps in the browser or the Google Apps, Spaces, G Suite, whatever they call it? Thank you. So what Richard is asking here is if you're using um, Google services, and this actually doesn't just apply to Google, it applies to any maybe more invasive company that you keep inside of your browser. I think it's maybe easier to answer what the web apps provide you that the apps don't. So web apps will ensure that these apps don't have direct access to your operating system. So they can't access things like your microphone, your notifications, and basic information about your device. All it can access is whatever your browser is able to share with them. You benefit from any tracking protection that's done inside of your browsers, which I hope that your browsers in 2023 do that. They benefit from any other privacy and security features that your browser provides, like fingerprinting protection. It also offers a layer of security because now you're not running the app natively on your phone where it has direct access to the operating system. You're running it inside your web browser. So something would have to bypass the web browser and then your operating system to do any damage. And now to more directly answer your question, what Google knows about you? If you're logged in to your Google account, well, it's all tied to your Google. Google account. If you have some kind of incognito window, you're clearing cookies, clearing cash, and Google isn't able to directly tie any data together, then it's a pretty fresh window and it's pretty much limited to whatever data you directly give them. So for example, if you open a private window with something like Brave on iOS and you open Google Maps, um, Google will be able to see obviously that you're typing in, um, how do you get from here to here, different things that you type in. They might see basic browser information, but outside of that, it's pretty well protected, especially if you're using a VPN, they can't even get an IP address on you. I am a very big proponent of progressive web apps and it's only getting better with time. Apple is now really having to open up progressive web apps due to the EU regulation. So it's very exciting to see web apps start to get more and more love over the years because they're a very powerful tool that can be used for privacy and security. To answer your question, if you're logged into your Google account, they can correlate things to your Google account. And if you're logged into a fresh browser window, it's possible they could try to tie um, the browsers together. Like, oh, we noticed that this is the same browser, same fingerprint, blah, blah, blah. But your browser might have protections against that. So I would say you're fairly well protected in a good browser that's protecting your privacy and security and using web apps. Next question comes from Clem, who asks, can you make video about private payment and secure payment? both for in-person and online. And in the meantime, what should I use and what 
do you recommend? So um, I've definitely covered this in the past, but maybe like a more thorough video um, just covering that uh, would be something good. I, I, we've covered it throughout different periods. Like we cover privacy.com a lot. This is TechLore, by the way. We cover privacy.com a lot. We've covered things like Monero. We cover um, different tools that we've used and prepaid debit cards. This is stuff that you'll hear throughout our content, but we haven't actually made a dedicated video towards it. So it's definitely something uh, I can look into. Um, in the meantime, um, it really depends on where you're located. If you're in the US, tools like privacy.com are fantastic. Um, and if you don't want to use something like privacy.com, there's always prepaid debit cards that you can purchase. Um, they they have to be non-reloadable because if they're reloadable, they have to be identity verified. But if they're non-reloadable, then you can just buy them from your local stores. Walmart has them. Target has them. Your local convenience store probably has them as well. But seriously, if you're in a place that uh, has privacy.com support, I, I really really, 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 really love privacy.com. And it's something that I really can't live without in my own journey. There's also gift cards and obviously there's always cash and you can now do things like purchase gift cards within things like Cake Wallet. So you can use Monero or Bitcoin or whatever you want inside of Cake Wallet to buy gift cards for most retailers, not most, but a lot of retailers. Um, and so there's lots of other things out there, but I think a dedicated video might be better, but hopefully there's some stuff there to get you started. And the third question comes from Clem, who asks, do you think small phones will ever come back, either Android or iPhone mini? Bit of a rant. I would rather watch a video, check email, etc., on an iPad or a MacBook than having an iPhone 14 plus. Okay, so um, I love this because I hate I hate, I notoriously hate big phones. I think there's so much e-waste involved. I think that people don't need massive phones. As someone who doesn't even have small hands, I think that small phones fit much better in the hand. They fit in my pockets. I can actually take them places. I actually don't know how people even carry big phones with them. If I'm going for a bike ride or something, I don't know where to put a big phone. They don't even fit in my bike pouch. So something else, I feel like people with big phones, like, can't really live super active lifestyles. Maybe that's an overgeneralization, but either way, I feel like it's harder to live an active lifestyle with a large phone. And on top of this, when I ask people I know why they have big phones, it's always like, I don't know. And I think that's because a lot of these companies have made their more premium models, their larger ones. And so people are now drawn towards the more expensive, luxury, larger phone. And so there's this whole status around big phones. And I frankly hate it. And I'm very upset that Apple shut down the iPhone 13 mini. There's no more mini lineup anymore. The 14 doesn't have a mini, which to me is very sad because I love the 13 mini size. I think it's so close to being a perfectly sized phone. And there are no Android phones out there that match the size of the 13 mini. None. With Android, there's the Asus Zenfone 9, and you have things like the Google Pixel, especially like the 4A, which I think was the smallest one. Those two are the smallest Android devices, which are still much larger than the 13 mini. The only real selling point for large devices that I've seen is I guess you can pack more hardware onto the phone. And on top of that, you have more battery life. But I don't see those personally as worthy sacrifices for having to carry a giant phone in my pocket everywhere I go. Like this person says, that's why I have a laptop and that's why I could get an iPad or something else if I wanted to. Now to get to your question, do you think small phones will ever come back? Um, I think there's always, I hope there's always going to be at least one or two small phone options. And as for whether or not they will come back, I don't know. I, you know, like that's just a trend thing. We used to be small phones and anti-big phones. Now we move to big phones. Are we going to move back to small phones? Time will tell. Um, I will say there is a project called smallandroidphone.com. That's literally the site. Smallandroidphone.com. This is a project from someone who, like me, is so upset that there's not an iPhone mini-sized Android phone. 
And actually, here are their reasons for loving small phones. They fit nicely in the pocket, are much lighter, are easy to use one-handed without dropping the device, and they won't fall out of their pocket while bicycling. Again, active lifestyles don't really agree with large phones, which actually leads to my theory that a more sedentary lifestyle could better enable people having large devices, but that's a theory. On top of this, this project goes for three things. A sub six inch display matching the size and design of the iPhone 13 mini, which by the way is much smaller than six inches. It has to have good cameras and it has to run stock Android or and it has to run stock Android OS or similar to it. And so that's a really cool project. Check it out, smallandroidphone.com. I registered and signed up. And if they actually release a phone like that, I'm buying it, maybe not day one, but I, I'm definitely gonna buy it at some point because I can't stand large devices. Now, one thing I'll add here, uh, Jonah and I have a theory, which I hope is true, but um, Apple reuses old builds for the SE. So the I, so the original iPhone SE, the first generation, used the iPhone 5S's build, I believe. It was the 5 or the 5S, which had a similar build, but I think it was the 5S that they used. So they actually took the entire 5S casing and they replaced the internals to make it modern, and then they released the iPhone SE first generation. And same thing with the iPhone SE second and third generation. So if you go to Apple's website right now and you buy an iPhone SE, that's actually the old iPhone 8. Another common pattern is the iPhone SE tends to always be a smaller device than Apple's other devices, to the point where it's actually unclear if the iPhone SE is meant to be a budget iPhone or a smaller iPhone. In short, Jonah and I's theory is that Apple discontinued the mini series, but might bring it back as the next iPhone SE someday. I'm hoping that's the case, but there's really no guarantee. And that's really just a theory that Jonah and I have. Um, so make of that what you will. I really hope that they bring back smaller iPhones and just small, and especially smaller Android devices because I am so sick. Holy cow, people. Like I have a Fairphone 4 here. This thing is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like I hold this in my hand and I hold it next to my 13 mini. 13 mini is like here, people. It is so bad. If you're watching the video, you're seeing me hold up the phone. But this thing is massive. I feel like I have to, I literally can wrap my two hands around this phone just like that. It's crazy why people would want this. I am so anti-phone and I know that people love their big phones and you're so valid as well, but man, am I against these big devices. And that's it for the week. Enough ranting about big phones. Again, YouTube was accused of collecting UK children's data. Google client-side encryption for Gmail is now open to the public. Canada has banned a TikTok on government devices. Parents in France may soon have to think twice before sharing photos of their kids and a lot more. Again, people, check out our Patreon. It really helps us and it keeps this podcast free for all of you. So we really appreciate that. And we're only two people away from breaking the 80 mark for our Patreon. So check it out down below, patreon.com slash surveillance pod. We really appreciate your support. And there's perks there for you as well. If you really like this podcast, we want to treat you a little bit too. Liberpay is an option if you want an alternative to Patreon. And we also have Monero, which is the most private form of supporting us. And we do see those contributions, but we don't know who you are. So uh, thank you to everyone who supports us through Monero. All that information and how to support the podcast is down in the description. Just to finish it out, thank you everyone for listening to the report. The final thing I want to ask you and probably Nate as well is to share the podcast around. Make sure you're subscribed. We had a lot of updates this week and we're going to keep having updates for the end of time, at least until we're done with this podcast, if that day ever comes. And please give us a rating if you're listening from a platform where that is an option. That does help us out and it helps us grow. And also word of mouth is massively important. So share this podcast with people you know. We don't really lean into sensationalist stuff. We don't really rely on sponsors. And so word of mouth and our Patreon are like fantastic ways to support what we do here on this podcast. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next week.